So I'm sure many of you here today know about Roadrunner and Wiley Coyote. Roadrunner, Wiley Coyote. And there's a story Brian Wilkerson tells about his little boy, four years old, sitting, watching television. The Roadrunner cartoon is looping over and over again. Finally, without missing a beat, without taking his eyes off the screen, the little four-year-old boy says to the whole family, it's no use. He might as well give up. That coyote's never going to catch that chicken. And you know, a lot of us live our lives like that. We're like Wiley Coyote. We're chasing something that we're never going to get. Even if he did catch that chicken, look at how skinny that thing is. There's no meat on his bones. It wouldn't even make a meal. You know, what would he have if he caught it? And many of us are just like that. We're chasing a chicken. What are, what are, you know, we're chasing after stuff, trying to fulfill our lives and make ourselves, you know, have some kind of purpose. I don't know if you've heard the story about a man named Winter. Winter, like the season. His actual name was uh, Raphael Antonio Lanzo, but he changed his name to John Winter Smith at some point, and then he changed it again just to Winter. He was a computer programmer, uh, made plenty of money, uh, but what he's best known for was he decided he was going to visit every Starbucks store in America. Now you may think, wow, that's a, that's a big deal. How could he ever do that? But he has visited, as of 2021, November 2021, he's visited uh, 16,000 Starbucks stores. That's amazing. And 13,000 of them were in the United States and Canada. Another 3,000 around the rest of the world. So he's made a big chunk out of visiting all those. He even made a documentary back in 2006 about his efforts to visit all the Starbucks stores. But you know what? What's the point? What's the purpose? Here's what he said himself. As long as they keep building Starbucks, I'll never be finished. And then he said this, every time I reach a Starbucks, I feel I've accomplished something when actually I've accomplished nothing. You know, if your goal is to do something like that, what are you going to get in the long run? Maybe fame? Uh, most of you in here probably didn't even know this guy existed. And, and yet, that's his goal in life. His purpose is to visit the Starbucks stores. You know, over these last two years, it's been tough on all of us. You think about, you know, the COVID that we've had to deal with, and a lot of people have kind of lost their purpose through that. You know, the purpose was, just don't get COVID. Or if I get it, don't go to the hospital. And we kind of lost our purpose. But what is our purpose? You know what? Jesus said something to us in Matthew six thirty three: Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So we need to have as a focus, somewhere in our purpose in life, we need to think about following the Lord and seeking Him out. But you know, through COVID, many people have lost their lives. I mean, I don't literally mean died. I mean, they've lost a purpose for why they're here. We go to work. We go home, we sit down in front of the TV, we veg out. 
And we get up and we do it all over again tomorrow. Um, and many people that I'm talking to are telling me, I just feel drained. I feel the need to be restored to something. I tell you, I know what that something is. We need to make sure that we're restored to God, that we, that we are in the right relationship with God. You know, COVID has taken a toll on the church. Not just our church, but churches all over America, all over the world, in fact. Attendance is down. And, and many people have just fallen away from the church. And we need to restore the church. And there are principles in the Bible about restoring the church. We've been studying. And those principles, many of them come from the book of Nehemiah. You might want to go ahead and make your way there to the book of Nehemiah. And we've looked at, we've looked at this book and we've been studying Nehemiah's leadership as he restores Jerusalem, the city of God. And we've seen that he realized the problem, that he reviewed the need, that he refocused the people, that he remembered the presence of God, and that he reacted to the obstacles. But today, we're going to think about revitalizing the purpose. You know, that's what we're going to think about today is, is the purpose. Why do we restore anything? You know, why would you restore an old car or a business or a house or a family that was broken down or a team or a church? What's the purpose? Why do it? And here's the question I want to raise today is, are we restoring for the right purpose? You know, Nehemiah was sent to restore Jerusalem. He wasn't just sent there to rebuild a wall and put some gates in. There was a lot more to it than that. And we've been looking... Remember, it said in chapter 2, verse 12, that God had put it on his heart to go to Jerusalem. Uh, God didn't just put it on his heart to rebuild a wall. God put it on his heart to restore and lift up a people to become, once again, the strong and vibrant people of God. You know, we're, we're leading up to where Nehemiah is taking this people as we go through this book. And today we're going to take another step toward the total purpose for which God sent Nehemiah there to Jerusalem. Turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Nehemiah chapter 6. We're going to begin there in verse 15 today. We ended up last week in verse 14. And today we're going to pick up here in verse 15. And there are lessons that we're going to learn today that maybe you've never thought about when it comes to restoring something. You know, we have to keep in focus this idea that we're trying to restore. Read with me, beginning at verse 15, Nehemiah chapter 6. So the wall was completed on the 25th of Elul in 52 days. Now let's stop for just a second. Elul is the name of a month on the Hebrew calendar. It is akin to our October in fact, some uh, theologians have done the math and counted back the years, and they determined that that was October the 2nd in 444 B.C. That's almost 2,500 years ago that that wall was restored. And, and Nehemiah went into the city, and in 52 days, he had that wall restored. It had been broken down for 150 years almost. And now in 52 days, he's got to rebuild. Verse 16. 
When all of our enemies heard about this, all the surrounding nations were afraid and lost their self-confidence because they realized that this work had been done with the help of our God. With the help of our God. And here's the first thing I want you to see, is the right purpose leads to amazing results because of God's help. You know, if you want God's help, you've got to have the right purpose. Sometimes I think we, we think God's supposed to be our uh, assistant, and he's supposed to get on, pay, on board with whatever it is we want to do. It's just the opposite. We're supposed to get on board with what God wants to do. And Nehemiah, God had put it on his heart to go. And why? Because we learn in Nehemiah chapter 1 that the city was in great trouble and disgrace. It was down. And it wasn't just because the walls were broken. The people were broken as well. Uh, God had sent Nehemiah there to restore Jerusalem. To restore the whole city. And a city is not just walls. It's people. It's buildings. It's the temple, which was the main part of the city. And not just because it was a building. And not just because it was God's building. Because it was the place for the center of God's worship in that day. So Nehemiah was sent to take the city physically back to restoration, socially to restoration, and spiritually to restoration. And Nehemiah had stayed focused on this purpose. And as we go through this book, and especially uh, in the part we're getting into now, we're going to see how God's purpose unfolds. You know, God desires for His people to be on board with His plan. Whatever that plan is. And He desires for His people to help uh, show other people His greatness and His glory. And that's why Nehemiah was there. You know, when we're not seeking to follow the Lord, we miss the whole meaning of life. There's an article that I came across this week. It's from a magazine called New Scientist. And in this magazine article, there were several philosophical questions that the article sought to answer from a scientific point of view. And one of the questions was this, what is the meaning of life from a scientific point of view? Uh, there's a bleak reality here. The harsh answer is, it has none. What is the meaning of life from a scientific point of view? It has none, it said. Uh, your life may feel like a big deal to you, but it's actually a random blip of matter and energy in an uncaring and impersonal universe. When it ends, few people will remember you for a while, but they will die too. Even if you make the history books, your contribution will soon be forgotten. Humans will go extinct. Earth and the sun will be destroyed. Eventually, the universe itself will end. Against all this appalling reality, how can human life have any real meaning? You know, just from a scientific point of view, we don't matter. We're just a, a blob of stuff. You know, I remember back when I was in school, the science teachers used to always say, you could take all the chemicals that it takes to make a human body, and you could uh, buy those for about 97 cents. Now, I did some research on that. PBS uh, TV had a show on, on Nova, and it said that the, uh, 
the chemicals that it takes to produce a human body now would be about $168. So a little bit of inflation there, but still not very much money. But you know, uh, science can't give you an answer to the meaning of life. And it really says that your, va- your body is not very valuable. But you know where we find value at? When we know Jesus Christ, when we know the Lord. In fact, Colossians 1.16 says, we were created by Him and for Him. And when we get on board with what He has for us to do, the Bible says He has a purpose for our lives. And when we get on board with that, man, life, the meaning of life becomes real. The value of life becomes so much more real. And to think that He cares enough that He sent His own Son to die that we might know that life and have eternal life is amazing. And He cares enough when we get on board with His purpose to lead us in success. Now look at verse 17. Also in those days, the nobles of Judah were sending many letters to Tobiah, and replies from Tobiah kept coming to them. For many in Judah were under oath to him, since he was the son-in-law to Shechaniah, and son of Arah, and his son Jehohanan had married the daughter of Meshulam, son of Berechiah. Just getting through those Hebrews' names is, is an accomplishment, I'm telling you. Moreover, they had kept reporting to me his good deeds, and then telling him what I said. And Tobias sent letters to intimidate me. That's Nehemiah speaking. The second thing I want you to see is that success in one area does not mean Satan has given up. You see, Satan's still at work behind the scenes in this. Now, apparently what happened, this guy Tobiah, you know, we've been studying in the first five chapters, and we see his name almost in every chapter. He's against the rebuilding of Jerusalem. And he's trying to do everything he can, even attack the city to prevent Nehemiah from being successful. But apparently, Tobiah was married to some Jewish ladies uh, that had relatives in the city. In fact, these relatives had helped rebuild the wall. And apparently, when Nehemiah first came to town, uh, he made an agreement. Maybe he, uh, he came to some of the people there and he said, Listen, I want you to give me a report. Swear to me that, you know, pledge an oath that you'll give me reports about how it's going. He probably tricked them into thinking, you know, he was was going to help them, but he was really against them. And so these men had sweared an oath, uh, some of these nobles in Judah, and they had pledged to keep him informed. And so there's back and forth communication. Maybe now they're trying to say, hey, you know this Nehemiah guy, he's not too bad. He's, he's helped us fix our city. Maybe you, ought to, maybe you ought to be friends with him. No. Tobias behind the scenes intimidating Nehemiah. Satan's always at work. You know, there's something else here It's kind of subtle, but unless you know Jewish history, the Jews were not supposed to marry somebody that wasn't a Jew. And so we see that these women... And prominent members of the families of Judah had allowed their daughters to marry people that were not Jews. That's another sign of what we've been talking about. They had lost their spirituality 
here in Jerusalem. And that's part of why Nehemiah came. And they were trying to get back on board. They were not following the Scriptures. And you know, when you get away from God's Word, you really are inviting Satan to come in. And when you let your guard down, and when you least expect it, that's when Satan rears his ugly head. Now, we're going to jump to chapter 7. After the wall had been rebuilt and I had set the doors in place, the gatekeepers and the musicians and the Levites were appointed. I put in charge of Jerusalem my brother Hanani, along with Hananiah, the commander of the citadel, because he was a man of integrity and feared God more than most people. And I said to them, The gates of Jerusalem are not to be opened until the sun is hot. While the gatekeepers are still on duty, have them shut the door and bar them. Also appoint residents of Jerusalem as guards, some of their post and some of some at their post and some near their own houses. You see, before the gates were restored and the wall was rebuilt, there was no way to secure Jerusalem. Now it's a secure place. And it needs to be because it's going to start thriving again. And we're going to see in just a minute what happens next. That city is going to come back to life. Before, when those gates were burned down, anybody could come into that city. Bad characters could sneak in there at night. And Nehemiah is telling his leaders, he said, Look, you make sure those gates don't open until the sun is hot. In other words, until it's good daylight. And you make sure before those guards go home at night, they shut those city gates and lock that up so we can protect our city from people that would come in and try to destroy us. Here's what I want you to see. Physical improvements alone are not the totality of the restoration process. You see, the wall was complete. It was, it was restored. But now they had to protect the city. Not only did they appoint these gatekeepers. Now, I want you to catch something here that's kind of subtle. It says they also appointed musicians and Levites. Now, musicians and Levites worked at the temple. The temple had been restored all the way back in 500 B.C. Uh, Zerubbabel came in, rebuilt the temple. But if you get this, it was not functioning the way the temple was supposed to function. They were supposed to have people there worshiping and singing uh, throughout the day. They were supposed to have priests on duty, and the, priest, the Levites assisted the priest. And the Levites were just now being appointed. The Levites took care of the maintenance on the temple. They took care of the physical property. They took care of cleaning up the, after the sacrifices were made. They were workers and servants. And they didn't have those. So the temple was not functioning as a place for the worship of God. It's supposed to be the center of worship for the Jews. Not just the Jews that lived there in Jerusalem. They were have three feasts every year when, when Jews from all over the world were supposed to come to those feasts. And the local people had to come there to make their sacrifices to God. Now, under the New Covenant, we no longer make sacrifices, but they did in this time. You know, Jerusalem was a place that was supposed to house the temple of God, and it was supposed to be a safe place and a place for the Jewish people not only to worship God, but to represent Him as the God of heaven 
for all people. And you know what's supposed to go on in the house of God? Whether it be the temple in Jerusalem or whether it be the church today. Worship and outreach and teaching and fellowship and ministry. And if those things are not going on in a church, well, the church is just basically useless. And all of those are supposed to be going on. We have to remember, too, that the church is not a building, just like the temple. It's not just a building. It's a place for the worship of God. And the church is not just a, not just a building. It's the people that meet in that building. And the building is nothing more than a tool that we use. You see, church is all about people worshiping with other people. It's about people reaching out and bringing other people. It's about people teaching people. It's about people fellowshipping together in the name of Jesus. It's about people ministering to other people. People are important. You know, I'm, I'm afraid in our world today with COVID and the way it's been, it's become comfortable for so many people to sit home and just watch online. Now, online is great if you're a shut-in. And i got to tell you, I talk to shut-ins almost every week, and they'll tell you I would give anything if I could get to church. Online is good if you're traveling and you want to see your church service. Online is good if you're homesick and, and you don't want to spread something to everybody else. Online is, is good if for some reason you just can't get to church. But that is not to replace the meeting together. Hebrews 10.25 says, Let us not give up the meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. God wants His people coming to the church to be part of a vibrant church. Just like God wanted people in this city to make this city vibrant again. You know, what if everybody in the church, what if everybody here today just said, I'm just going to watch online. Do you think those guys in the back would show up to put the cameras on? If everybody didn't come, who would preach? If everybody didn't come, who would run the camera? If everybody didn't come, who would run the sound? If everybody didn't come, who would clean the place? You understand? God wants His people gathering to operate His church. I, I read this week in a book I was reading, a sad story. Anybody ever heard of the Crystal Cathedral? It's in Garden Grove, California. It's a large church out there. It was started by Dr. Robert Schuler back in the 1950s. Millions of people have visited that place. It is a it may be the most beautiful church in the world. Uh, the most modern beautiful church in the world. Had thousands of members, uh, thousands of people tuned in online every Sunday. When I was growing up, I remember when I was getting ready for church, it was, it was always on the TV. We'd have the TV going, the hour of power. Remember that, Dr. Robert Schuler, Always positive, always, always you know, trying to get people jacked up and... And just always positive. Well, Schuler started getting old. And his mind started going a little bit. You know, they had to nudge him a little bit. Okay, Dr. Schuler, it's time to get up and preach now. And then he would forget in the middle of his sermons, part of his sermon. And, you know, uh, kind of like me sometimes. 
and and uh, so the plan was for his son to take over, but Shula wasn't ready to quit. And so his son started taking over, and the church was losing members because they were getting old, and many of them were dying. And the son says, we need to reach out to a new, younger generation. Well, after two years, the dad said, we ain't doing that. And I'm going back to preaching. Well, then they lost more members. And next thing you know, the church is in bad shape financially. And then the next thing you know, they're filing bankruptcy. And they had to sell that building. They sold it to the Catholic diocese uh, there in California and sold it for $57.5 million. And now the church moved to another building that they were able to lease. Much smaller building, not as nice. And now the church dropped down to 400 people, and now the church is no more. You know why? Because there was strife among the people. They were not unified. It doesn't matter how beautiful your building is. It's not about the building. It's about the people. Now, God wants us to keep the building in good shape. But church is about the, about the people. And you've got to have people to make a vibrant church. Well, look at verse 4. Now, the city was large and spacious, but there were few people in it. And the houses had not yet been rebuilt. So my God put it into my heart to assemble the nobles and the officials of the common people for registration by families. And I found the genealogical record of those who had been first to return, and this is what I found written there. So Nehemiah goes back, and there's a list in the book of Ezra, just before Nehemiah, of those that returned. That same list is printed right here, almost exactly. And Nehemiah began to look. Who were the first people to come back uh, when they allowed the, the slaves to uh, come back from Persia? And who are the ones in line to have places inside the city? And they began to rebuild the houses inside the wall, and they populated those with those people who were actually could prove that they were Jews, first of all, and then that were on, on the list that had owned proper property their families had previously, and they populated that city and brought that city back to a vibrant place. Whether it's the city of God or whether it's the church of God, it's all about people. God wants people people. It's people and God. And pretty much that's true in trying to restore any organization. you got to have people. People are what make the place. And Nehemiah continued his work. He got the houses restored. He got the records together. He, he, uh, he found out who was uh, supposed to be property owners, who was, who was really a Jewish person. And he recounts this whole list. Now, I'm not going to read it. If anybody here wants to pronounce all those Jewish names, come on up. We'll give you a microphone. Uh, we'll wait till after the service to do that. But the purpose was to restore that city, to make it a vibrant place once again, so that people far and wide could come and worship at that temple and find a city that was bustling with people and had vendors in there to sell people food, and, and had people living there to, to protect the city. People that were dedicated to God, and people that wanted to represent Him well. 
You know, that was a place where God wanted His temple to thrive and He wanted His people to thrive. You know, that's what God wants for His church, right? He wants a thriving church. He doesn't want a dying church. He wants a church full of people, restored. And as we've gone through this COVID, you know, many churches are down. Our church is down. But we, the people, have got to come together to restore the church to what God wants it to be. Well, here's our connection. Once the physical issues are restored and the people are in place, then revival can begin. You know, Nehemiah led the people to rebuild the wall. He led them to refurbish the houses. He led them to re-inhabit the city. But that's not the end. We're just getting to the good part of this book. And next week, chapter 8, I don't know if you've read ahead yet, but chapter 8 is amazing at what happens. And there's a great celebration coming up. And the amazing thing is, it happened as the people came together. I read something this week, uh, just by happenstance. A, a survey was done. A lady named Maria Steinwinkel. That's as bad. She's from Sweden. That's as bad as one of those Hebrew names. And she asked people around the world, what is your greatest fear in life? Now, as you can imagine, people said different things. Uh, some said fear of dying alone. Some said fear of losing my job. But one surprising answer came up. And this answer came up in one in five people. Over 20% of the people answered that their greatest fear in life was living life without purpose or meaning. Now think about that. What if your purpose in life was to visit all the Starbucks? You know, God's given us a purpose. That is to be a vital and vibrant part of His kingdom and to help His kingdom to expand and to grow. And that's what He's called us to do. And that's our purpose, is to be part. Matthew 6, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you as well. Let's pray. God, we're just grateful for men like Nehemiah, Lord, and your Bible is filled with these great men who just, you laid it on their heart, and Lord, they took it in, and they were leaders, and they went out, and they sought to build your kingdom. And Lord, they got all kind of obstacles in their way, but they didn't give up. And Lord, they were successful because you helped them. And Lord, I have no doubt in my mind, when a church, a congregation, the people, your people, make a decision, we're going we're gonna to restore our church back to where it was and even beyond where you were taking us before COVID so that we can be a vibrant part of your kingdom. So help us as we go forward. In the mighty name of Jesus, I pray and praise today. Amen.